0: Shalom, you're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number two hundred and twenty. My name is ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king. Lord, we are delighted that we have made it through another one of your special holy days, Shavuot Pentecost, the feast of uh I don't know if I want to call it a feast, but the the remembering of the outpouring of the holy spirit the the giving of the words of torah at sinai the 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 festival of weeks um the connecting the in the end of the journey of connecting the the um festival of passover to the festival of of pentecost the the by the um the counting of the omer between lord we've reached that point now as of this recording we are now past that shavuot is behind us but the experience that we had with you during that time is something that we simply can't live without we've got to have a steady source of the spirit in our life and a steady source a steady uh feeding uh, on the word of god so it's like the um analogy that i heard an old pastor friend of mine tell me um the combination of the word of god and the spirit of god is a lethal combination In the life of a believer, of a believer, and if they are in imbalance in any one, um, in any one case, then there's going to be problems. So if we've got too much word and not of spirit, then we're going to dry up because we're going to tend to be legalistic. Um, we're not going to be very effective in our witness because we're just focusing on the 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 literal word, and um, there's no there's no power in our life, et cetera, et cetera. And conversely, if there's too much, quote unquote, spirit in our life, and we don't have any objective word, we don't have any anchor point, we don't have any standard of righteousness, holiness, and sin, etc., provided by the Word of God, then we're going to blow up. Our head's going to swell with all kinds of spiritual experiences. We're going to think we're better than everyone else. So we've got to have this balance in our life, um, a healthy balance of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And that's what the, um, the, the dual occurrences of what took place at Shavuot represent in our life. The giving of the Torah at Sinai, like the rabbis recognize today, like rabbinic Judaism, if you ask them what did Shavuot signify, they're not going to say anything about Acts chapter 2 or the outpouring of the Spirit or anything like that. And yet if you ask Christians and Messianics what does Shavuot, Pentecost, represent, they're going to tell you the the Spirit, Acts chapter 2. And many of them are going to mention the Torah as well. So Lord, we, we thank you for both of these two truths that combine in that one festival that we enjoyed um, last weekend. So thank you for that. Continue to bless us as we, uh, go along in our studies tonight. Um, be with those who wanted to make it tonight, but couldn't. And I pray, uh, blessings on those who watch the video afterwards and listen to the iTunes podcast afterwards. I pray that, um, uh, your truths will be that which permeates, permeates their heart and penetrates, um, their mind and, uh, causes them to, uh, uh, to make a change for uh, your kingdom, Lord. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory, but shame Yeshua. Amen. All right, these are the live internet studies, and we missed a week due to the Shavuot celebration that I was just talking about in my um, opening prayer. And so now we're back on track, ready to jump back in and get started with the studies. Remember, there's two um, segments To each of these uh, hour and a half long live internet studies might make this one a little shorter tonight because I'm having some technical difficulties with my, um, my uh, equipment, not my computer, but my monitor and um, my external monitor. And so um, um, I'm doing something different with the recording equipment. So I don't know how much of this is going to look the way I want it to. So we'll see might make this a little shorter uh, so that I can do some effective troubleshooting. But we are in the study on eschatology. That's what you're seeing on your screen now. Now this is the um, kind of the, the running topical schedule uh, that we've been using. The 17 topics that we're going to be hitting, and you can see that the first five have lines through them, struck through. We've already dealt with those. We're now on topic six: Excursus Antichrist, according to Robert Van Kampen. He is a Christian author who passed away back in 2000, wrote a book called The Sign. It's an end-time prophecy book, a look at end-time events, prophetic events. A very, very helpful book. I strongly recommend it. I'll flash a little screen grab of um, Amazon's uh, offering of the book in post-production, and if you want to buy it, you can kind of follow that lead and go, go after the book. But what we're doing is I borrowed a few paragraphs out of his chapter on Antichrist. So the topic tonight is excursus, antichrist according to robert van campen so who is the antichrist um he's the he's the big bad guy that opposes christ and tries to take the place of christ uh in the end time scenarios if you are a non-preterist well even if you're a preterist you still have to factor in some type of antichrist figure but um do a google search for that term the, the 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 figure the uh the the leader ruler known as Antichrist, and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. So let me just turn to the notes that we've been borrowing from uh, Mr. Van Kampen. We we left off in the middle of a quote, or we left off talking about this quote from the book of Daniel. You can see on your screen right now, I backed up to the quote from Daniel. I'll read that, then I'll jump back into the paragraph that we left off with um, before the two-week break. Okay, so this is a quote from um, Van Kampen's book, his chapter on the, uh, the Antichrist, but it's um, starts out with a quote from the book of daniel uh so let's read this now remember uh just a refresher when we're studying this figure known as antichrist this historical figure this biblical figure the prototype of antichrist the forerunner the shadow of antichrist is this figure historical figure known as antiochus Epiphanes. and so really for this next section probably this week, next week, and maybe even next week after that, as I figure how much how many notes I've got, we're going to be looking at how the Bible shows us and demonstrates us and characterizes and gives us details about a prophecy that Daniel gave us that that captures two simultaneous purposes. On the one hand, it shows us who, from Daniel's vantage point, who this coming Antiochus Epiphanes would be in light of Israel's history and things like that, dealings with... Um, Gentile rulers who would affect Israel on a on a very up close and personal level and not in a good way. So on the one hand, uh, what we're going to be reading about here is that the Bible is describing this figure that historically can be described as or recognized as um, Antiochus Epiphanes. At the same time, however, Scripture is telling us that this prophecy about who we're reading about has not been exhausted. And therefore, we should be looking forward into history now for another fulfillment And this time, the latter fulfillment, the final fulfillment, the greater fulfillment will be Antichrist. So there's the type and shadow comparison, the prototype and the type, the forerunner and the actual runner, if I can borrow the terms correctly. Um, Antichrist versus Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antichrist came later, Antiochus Epiphanes came first. That's what we're looking at. So that's where we're jumping in. So Van Campens borrows this quote from the book of Daniel. And some of those... Who have insight, that is Jewish believers, the little bracketed parts are Van Campen's own uh, commentary. Jewish believers, they will fall, speaking of the time of the end times, right? Daniel's 70th week, the last 77 years of mankind's um, dealings with God here on earth in a, in a predominant way, the last rebellion of mankind, uh, that type of thing or some Christians recognize this as the last, the last seven-year tribulation or um, something to that effect. So um, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them, that is the many, the nation of Israel, to make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Again, these are Daniel's words, speaking of this end time uh, event and this end time scenario. We're really picking up the sequence of events right around the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Um, Van Campen continues with his own inserted uh, thoughts on this prophecy from Daniel. Here's where Daniel shifts from Antiochus to Antichrist, and um, many I may interject many Bible commentators think that this is accurate. That Daniel may not have even known this, but the terminology that Daniel uses. Better describes Antiochus than it does. I'm sorry. Better describes Antichrist than it does Antiochus. There are other authors that I've encountered myself that believe that that Antichrist was actually even spoken of even very uh, earlier on in this part of Daniel's uh, prophecy, which we'll see the reference here in a moment. The the address. Um, but either way, um, this part of Daniel definitely. Has what we call type anti-type language, near far prophecy, uh, now and not yet prophecy, or prophetic telescoping, fill in the blank with whatever terminology seems to help you understand that that this is what's going on. So Daniel continues. Daniel says, Then the king, and then Van Campen puts in brackets antichrist, right? Your Bible is not gonna say antichrist there, that's my point. But then the king, that is antichrist, according to Van Campen, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, small g, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, capital G. And um, so he's going to be, as uh, so I'm inserting some my, own, my own interjection as well, interpretation, the Antichrist or, and or Antichus first, the forerunner, but Antichrist after him uh, is going to be opposing not just every other leader of his day, uh, human leader, but he's also more importantly, he's going to have a, a mind bent on declaring himself to be God. We know that uh, when we get to the New Testament part, some of um, Paul's writings talk about uh, this future leader who's going to oppose him, uh, oppose God, exalt himself. Put himself in the temple and declare himself to be God et cetera et cetera so that's this is the the um, the confirmation that Daniel already provided for for when paul when Paul wrote those words. so continuing with daniel um the quote from van Kempen says, and he speaking of Antichrist, will prosper until the indignation is finished, or that which is decreed will be done and that's of course speaking of the fact that Daniel's already been given this prophecy earlier in his writings, Daniel chapter 9, that this little horn who opposes God's program, God's Messiah, God's ruler, and ultimately God himself, this little horn is going to meet his ending. He's going to become this abomination of desolation in the um and stand in the holy place. He's going to desolate the temple, and yet that which is decreed by God is that he himself will meet his destruction. He will himself be destroyed um, He will be defeated by the rock that strikes the stone in Daniel chapter two in the statue in the vision of the statue. He will be um, defeated uh, by the ancient of days that approaches the I'm sorry, by the Son of Man who approaches the ancient of days in Daniel chapter um, seven, the vision that Daniel himself had, not King Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel's own vision of the four beasts. So that's what's happening here in Daniel 11, verse 35 and 36. Um, we see that uh, this wicked ruler will prosper, at least during this end times. He'll have his way for a while. He will have the ability to, um, as we're going to find out later uh, later on, not tonight possibly, but later on as we study through Daniel, we'll find out that this wicked ruler is going to actually be given time to overcome and uh, actually even overpower the saints of God. You might think, why would God allow that to happen? It's because of what we read earlier earlier in the chapter. Um, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them pure until the end time. God is allowing Antichrist to have a measured amount of victory over God's people, which in the context... Is first the people of Israel, but by the time we find out how that this is Antichrist um, uh pouring out his wrath on the end time scenario, it's going to really include Christians who also name the name of God and name the name of Jesus as their messiah um Why would God allow uh this Antichrist figure to have um victory over god's people um It's because of the purging effect, the refinement effect on god's people um the, the um, allowing of the um, proofing of the faith of God's people. Are you for God or are you going to um, fall away, apostatize, apostatize and give in to the Antichrist, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So that's a quote from Daniel 11, uh, 35 and 36. And the little brackets were edited by Mr. Van Campen. Okay, so let's keep reading. So um, these are Van Campen's words now. This is basically where we left off two weeks ago. Um, this a, I backed up a little bit, and da- in addition, Daniel establishes this parallelism. This is what we're talking about when we say parallelism, um, uh, prophetic uh, telescoping, where we have a figure that's described in the Bible um, that is a is a shadow or prototype of a final figure or final event. Two events that are seen through the lens of the prophet, that perhaps maybe even to the perspective of the prophet was only one event. That's the, the point of um, prophetic telescoping or um, something to that effect. That's kind of what's what's uh, going on. Um, so this parallelism uh, Antichrist, uh, Van Campen talks about uh, that we're reading about in the Bible refers to both Antichrist and Antiochus as a small horn. And that language that you see in Daniel is what you should be looking for when you're trying to discern, well, who's in view? Is Daniel talking about Antiochus? Or is he talking about Antichrist? And you just have to determine from context. Um, in other words, the pap- the prophecy could be referring to both of them, but in what we call partial fulfillment and total fulfillment. And so it could be that the prophecy is going to play itself out historically twice. One time in the partial fulfillment, one time in the total fulfillment or final fulfillment, or one time in the near term from Daniel's purview and one time in the far perspective from Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. You have to look for biblical cues. um, And history in in these cases is now going to help us discern more, well, did this prophecy exhaust itself in the historical person known as Antiochus? And, or if it didn't, then there must be some future details that are left to um, play out. And, as I, again, interject, I apologize if this is a bit confusing. Those of you who are not familiar with the way biblical prophecy works. Because of the fact that much of biblical prophecy in the Old Testament is now past history, we can, as discerning Bible students, look at the Bible, and then we can look at past history, and we can compare the two, realizing that God's Word doesn't use arbitrary details for the purpose of just filling in the gaps or buffering um, the context or whatnot. Uh, In other words, like fluffing things up um, just for, for no reason. God, the, the idea is that when the Bible um, foretells an event and it gives the details, the person who takes the, the Bible at its most literal, natural understanding allows for the fact that God was describing events and he's exacting in his detail. He doesn't leave things out. well, from his perspective, he doesn't. From our perspective, we don't get all the details we'd like, but from God's perspective, he gives all of the details to the prophet, and all of those details come to pass, albeit there's some symbolic language in there, there's typological language, there's um apocalyptic language, there's all kinds of symbols that are used, et cetera, et cetera. This is true. However, generally speaking, overall, when we look at the prophecy, it's like it says like if God says, "This nation is going to disappear and never again rise up." And then we look at history, and we realize that this nation in in question still is still around. Then we have to come to the conclusion that either a the prophecy has only been partially fulfilled, or b God was not telling us the whole story. He was he was wrong. He said this pro, this nation would disappear from the earth, and they didn't, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, that's kind of what goes what happens in prophetic passages like like this, like the one we're looking at. Did all of the prophecy come to pass in, Antioch, in the Antiochus' day? Well, we don't believe all of it did. Therefore, when we read a prophecy like we're reading now and in, in the details, we may, we must then come to the conclusion that there must be further details that are down the pike waiting for us to happen that will then, in hindsight, once the second event happens, then we realize, oh, all of God's word is true. All right, let's keep reading. So Van Campen continues. It becomes clear from the context of these two separate references to the small horn that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, and we've already uh, looked at the little horn um, in the past. Go back and listen to past studies or go back and read Daniel 7 on your own, um, specifically verses 8 through 27. This little horn is in reference to Antichrist, while the small horn of chapter 8, see verses 9 through 26, is in reference to Antiochus himself. So, again, um the little horn and the small horn. That's what I was kind of leading up to this, this language that we're encountering in Daniel is, is it's both Antiochus Epiphanes, as well as the Antichrist who would come later on. And the prophecy given to Daniel at Daniel's time in his time, he may not have been aware that there actually may be two individuals, <clears throat> uh, the little horn. He may have just seen them as one person. And that leads people to have di- um differences of opinion, on the way the prophecy should be understood. Is this a preteristic perspective? Did it all take place in the first century and those earlier times 2000 years ago? Or is there a future fulfillment that should await us here uh, as we move into the latter days and the last days, like in the futurist perspective? Remember, this study is from the futurist perspective. so. I believe that uh, a lot of the prophecy is still future, although some of it did take place in the past, obviously Antiochus has already come and gone, and we can learn from his life and his campaign and his his dealings with Israel as we look at the prophecy and um, realize that the future Antichrist figure is likely to repeat a lot of the same steps that Antiochus already took, maybe perhaps even without realizing that he's walking in the very same footsteps, and why would he step in those same um in those in those why would he take the same steps? Why do we repeat the same things? Not because he have a, has a will of his own, but it's because prophecy must be fulfilled, and God is orchestrating history. And that's why God is saying, when this little horn does XYZ and the partial fulfillment is Antiochus, Antiochus didn't know that he was fulfilling prophecy. He may have known, but he probably didn't, in my opinion. He was simply doing what God had already. Foretold he would do because God can see the future from the past. Likewise, Antichrist, when he hits the scene, Antichrist is going to once again imitate Antiochus, but more importantly, he's going to fulfill prophecy because God is in control, not because Antichrist is calling the shots or has decided that he looked up Antich- Antiochus and said, Hey, that's a really cool guy historically. I think I'll follow after his, his campaign. I think I'll follow his blueprint. Do what he did. No, it probably isn't going to be that way. All right, Van Kampen continues. Speaking of the, the parallelism between these two wicked rulers, the parallelism between Antichrist and Antiochus is indeed striking. We know, however, that it is more than coincidence and, in fact, reveals the intended meaning of Scripture. Because Christ specifically refers to Daniel's prophecy, right? Remember, we're working our way towards Matthew's um, all of it Discourse and Mark and Luke, um, where we record the words of the Master, which overlap with, not just with, with details from Daniel, but overlap with, and we're going to see this later on, maybe even tonight, but overlap with what John recorded in the book of Revelation. But, um... Christ specifically refers to Daniel's prophecy, and what he does is he draws upon this parallelism with his reference, that's Messiah, to the abomination of desolation when speaking about the Antichrist. So you've got to, have to go back and read Matthew 24, 15. This is also, in my opinion, one of the stronger reasons why I believe it's beneficial for us as Bible students, those who are studying end-time prophecy, It's beneficial for us to study Antiochus Epiphanes and the things that he did to get a view towards what Antichrist himself is going to do again. It's because of the link and the parallelism that our master himself provided when he told his disciples and now us, because the words were recorded for them and for us, to go back and read Daniel, right? When you, I'm paraphrasing, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, right? Um, I'm paraphrasing what Yeshua said in that passage there in Matthew. Well, then what Yeshua was cluing the disciples in, and again now us, was he's cluing them into was, hey, there are some events that are about to take place, and I believe um, a lot of that was dealing with the destruction of the temple in, the, in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem shortly thereafter in the 130s. But what, you, what our master was saying was, if you want to be prepared about what's going to happen in, in the immediate future as it pertains to your immediate situation, Israel and the temple uh, environs, read through Daniel right, and go back and understand about some of the details there. So let's keep reading uh, Van Campen. He says that Daniel refers to Antiochus as the quote abomination of desolation end quote in Daniel 11:31. And yet that's what Yeshua said in Matthew 24:15 when you see this abomination of desolation which so this phrase abomination of desolation has dual meaning. It can refer to the person, the antichrist himself. He is the abomination of desolation. And on the same token in in Daniel 9, Daniel refers to the abomination of desolation as this event where the um temple itself is desecrated by uh, the Antichrist figure, the abomination of desolation and so. Um, again, to Antichrist, uh, this reference is referred to uh, using the same name in Daniel 12, 11. So, um, lots of details that, that are relevant for us as we're studying these end-time events and looking at these end-time prophecies. Again, the Preterist perspective Believes that all of this took place in the past in 70 A.D. and then again, and then finally in 130. Um, and so they're not reading through the Book of Revelation or the Book of the Books of First and Second Thessalonians or even Yeshua's words in Matthew. They're not really looking at that as the details of what might happen in the future. But those of us who don't follow the preterist view of end time prophecy, I myself am a non-preterist. Um, Eschatological students, so I believe that most of the prophecies uh, that deal with end time scenarios, like say the Book of Revelation, etc., are future facing, meaning they haven't happened yet. They have future fulfillment. So let's keep reading Van Campen and find out some of these more de- some more of these details. The near fulfillment. Of this event as first predicted centuries earlier by daniel himself was of course in 168 bc with the desecration of the temple by antiochus so we're talking about near far prophecy near to daniel far from daniel that's what we mean by near far near in the terms of when daniel wrote down these words the first event to happen in history would be antiochus Epiphanies and the events in 168 B.C. from Daniel's perspective, nearer to Daniel. However, if they are indeed um, serving a dual function, i.e., near and far, then part of the prophecy was also far away from Daniel. In other words, two thousand years plus far away from Daniel, as it's been, you know, two thousand years since the first century when uh, when the, the near part took place. Van camping continues. The parallel far fulfillment of this event. We're talking about this desolation, abomination, desolation, and things like that. The far fulfillment of the event will come at the midpoint of Daniel's seventieth week, when what? When Antichrist desecrates the rebuilt temple in the last days. So we're talking about Daniel's seventieth week. Remember, we talked about that during the previous topic study, topical number five or topic number four, I believe, and. Now we're still in the seventieth week of Daniel. We're looking at these events that have been that are unfolding in this la, during these last seven years, and I know many Christians are listening to these uh, studies with a view towards, well, we're going to be raptured away during this time. We don't really even have to focus on what, who, or what Antichrist is, what he's going to be doing, et cetera, et cetera, because the church will have already been yanked away by the rapture. Well, that's the pre-pre. Uh, A pre-trib view of rapture. Some people have abandoned the idea of rapture altogether. Um, I myself do not believe that the rapture should be abandoned. I do believe there is a rapture, a snatching away of the saints unto uh, Yeshua. However, I place the rapture not prior to any seven-year events, and not even at the midpoint, but close to the midpoint. I place it, according to my understanding of, of Scripture, slightly after the midpoint, and the view is known as pre-trib, I'm sorry, pre-wrath raptor, which we will deal with in time, if you remember my little topical schedule. Let's keep moving along into this, um, um, uh, part. We'll read, I think one more paragraph, maybe two more paragraphs. And then I, I, I'm going to draw this a little shorter tonight because of my technical difficulties. So I apologize. Um. I'll keep this short in case this really isn't turning out the way I want it to, and I need to go back and redo it. So my apologies. All right, so let's continue with um, Van Kampen. He says, "Thus, by uh, and we're talking about Antichrist, and and uh, as seen through the lens of the uh, forerunner uh, Antiochus. Thus, by looking at the ancient despot Antiochus, we gain considerable insight into Antichrist and his strategy." for the last days, as well as the many other events that will occur during the 70th week. That's basically the overview, the the kind of summary of where we're going with the the details. Let's continue. Um, uh, Van Campen continues, the following then is a brief overview of these events that will give us greater insight into the end times. And so now he's going to be dealing with um, history as seen through the lens of what happened during the times of Antiochus Epiphanes and his dealings with Israel, remember from context, the 70th week belongs to Daniel, his people, his city, and his temple. Remember that when we from uh, reading Daniel 9:24 through 27, that God I'm paraphrasing God told Daniel through the the angel gabriel 70 weeks are determined for your people your temple your city to do all of these things and there's like these six bullet points maybe i'll in post-production i'll flash them on the screen but in those details primarily they're given over to the people of israel the land of israel the temple of israel etc etc it will involve in my opinion uh dealings with the church because of the feature of the inclusion of the Gentile believers into the people of God at the spiritual covenant level, at the new covenant level. Genuine Christian Gentile Christians are grafted into Israel at the spiritual new covenant level. This doesn't turn them into Jews, but it turns them into genuine covenant members at the heart level because of their personal relationship with the Messiah of Israel, namely Jesus. And so as we're reading through these historical events, please remember that primarily from the historical a near-term fulfillment, or the partial fulfillment, most of that is going to be dealing with Israel, the temple, the people of Israel, the land of Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when we look at what Antichrist is going to do in the future, as we begin to turn to the book of Revelation later, we're going to find that Antichrist starts with Israel, just like the prophecies does say. He deals with the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the temple, etc. That's kind of his focus. His headquarters is going to be set up in Jerusalem. But, the activities of the Antichrist of the future are going to spill out into the rest of the world. So it's going to involve not just Israel and Jerusalem and the people of Israel and the temple of Israel, but it's going to now involve the Gentile nations surrounding Israel, and eventually it'll spread out into the entire world, as I understand the prophecy. So first, uh, Van Campen is going to give us the historical that dealt primarily with Israel, and then with a view towards what's going to happen when Antichrist takes over and picks up where his forerunner uh, Antiochus uh, left off. So we'll read through this first part, um, or the first paragraph, and then, I'm, like I said, I'm going to m- cut this off a little bit early because of the technical difficulties that I'm having with my recording. So, um, Van Cameron says, First, a little history. In ancient Israel... Long after the end of her own monarchies, and after most of the exiles had returned to the promised land, God's chosen nation, the natural line of Abraham, they persisted in ever increasing, increasing apostasy. So we already know that this is already past history. We can again know that when you're reading through the Bible and you're seeking to understand end time prophecy, you have to realize that part of what you're reading has details that have already taken place historically and so it's allowable to use history to back up what the bible says realizing of course at the end of the day that the bible is the final say and it's the ultimate authority when it talks about historical events but the bible doesn't flesh out all of the details like history does so the historians who came alongside of the bible and wrote various details like we read about um josephus is a biblical historical writer. well he's not biblical but he's an historical writer of the time who lived through a lot of those events and the historians that wrote about Antiochus that we're going to be reading about. Um, when we read all these details, we can have the Bible in one hand and our history book in the other, but the ultimate authority is not the history book. The ultimate authority is the Bible, the one that's the, going to be the most accurate, even though it's not going to be the one that has most of the details. Van Kampen continues, Because of Israel's blatant disbelief and disobedience, the Lord not only allowed his nation to be conquered, and persecuted by an exceedingly cruel pagan oppressor, um named Antiochus Epiphanes, right? The Greek king of Syria. But he even permitted his own holy temple in Jerusalem to be profaned. So, again, and we'll draw our study to a close with this. <clears throat> the purpose of studying this part of history is not so that we can be better historians. But it's because Bible prophecy pl- plays out in such a way that it has near-far applications or partial-total application. And as we're reading to the prophecies about this coming world ruler, then we gain our best insight from studying the prophecies that have already spoken to the forerunner to that event known as Antiochus Epiphanes, or other Antichrist figures who have already come and gone on the scene. Um, The Bible can be speaking of those figures as well. But I believe that when we're talking about Antichrist, there is a spirit of Antichrist that is in the world, and a program kind of, or forerunners of Antichrist, types and shadows, as it were, of Antichrist, prototype Antichrist that have come and gone. But, and I'll close with this, when we read through the Bible, there is definitely a final single uh what we might call um prominent figure, a uh, uh, an antichrist figure who is going to uh finalize the prophecies. So that we're talking about not now just a um we're not talking anymore about the spirit of antichrist. We begin focusing on an individual, a single, a final man, a a um a focal point a fullness of the prophecy coming to pass in the person of this antichrist figure that's going to be uh controlling things from the middle east but influence uh, influencing uh, events that will have impact ripple effects around the world and so we'll cut it off tonight here a little bit early, as i mentioned i apologize uh, but that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torturer congregation, Kei Nevada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online. And um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash Taitse torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like Um, Leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow if you're on my website right now. Uh, during the live study and you click on that blue skype link it'll actually open up skype in your browser and you can just join us right there and we hope you can join us live because we engage in uh, live q a after the study is over opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, q a But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website, where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there, and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, Thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing. To give, I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi, and normally I take about 30 minutes to go through this particular study. But because I'm having some technical difficulties tonight, my apologies. I'm going to make this part of our study a little shorter. Also, probably half that. We'll only go for about 15 minutes. And then I can uh, figure out what's going on, and uh, we'll be better prepared next week. We left off, we're dealing with this, um, let me back up to this page. We're looking at BiblicalUnitarian.com. It's a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is a website that's dedicated to refuting Trinitarian theology. So their perspective of God is that He is numerically one. He is God the Father. He's the only God there is. He is one person. God, the being, is one person, and he's not uniplural. There's no person of the Father, person of the Son, person of the Holy Spirit. From their perspective, they're simply God, and that's it. The Son is a human figure known as Jesus Christ— He has been exalted by God the Father, glorified by God the Father, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, but nevertheless he is still a human being who was exalted by God. He was not pre-existent with God in the past. He didn't exist with God in eternity as the Word of God or anything like that. He existed eternally in the mind of God, but not as a separate person according to the biblical Unitarian model of God, of, of Trinity. So their triune, their trinity, is not a trinity of three persons. Their trinity is one God, one being, one person, and then a man named Jesus, the Messiah. And then the Spirit is the power of God, the impersonal force of God that God can bestow upon a person for anointing, for empowerment, to to do the will of God, or... In other cases, depending on the, the context of where you're reading about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God himself. It's, the Holy Spirit is, is God, who is a spirit, who is holy. So, um, it's not a third person of the Trinity. It's the word Holy Spirit, in their perspective, is simply the first person of no Trinity. It's the First person, in other words, he's the only person. So that's where their perspective is we're reading through their view of psalm 110 verse 1 the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand let me read the verse itself from the nesb 1995 version a psalm of david the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet and so what we're learning uh let me go back now over to uh biblical unitarian what we're learning from their perspective we're not even done a reading theirs we're gonna f- I, we might finish reading theirs tonight because I'm just going to read, but we're learning from their perspective that they believe that the psalmist was basically, basically describing this human Messiah, this king ruler who would who would be exalted to God's right hand and sit at God's right hand until God put all of this king Messiah's enemies at the feet of this king Messiah. But nevertheless, he's still human, and so their, the entire thrust of their explanation is going to be to. Um, show how that the Messiah is not deity, that he's simply merely a man. He was not preexistent. He's merely a human ruler that the psalmist um, prophesied about would, in fact, one day uh, be exalted at the right hand of God. So let's pick up Biblical Unitarian's um, reading uh, of their explanation right here where you can see on my screen where I'm highlighting. This is BiblicalUnitarian.com. The Bible in Psalm 110.1 actually gives the Messiah the title that never describes God. The word is Adonai, and in all of its 195 occurrences in the Old Testament, it means a superior who is human or occasionally angelic, created, and not God. So, again, we've read this two weeks ago, but now I'm giving you the filler since we had a break for for Shavuot, Pentecost. The context of what they're going to be telling us is that there are these hebrew terms that have been preserved by the masoretic scribal families that preserved the ancient biblical texts for us and these words in the bible have a special way of letting us know by the way they're spelled and by the way they're pronounced who is the lord in the first part of the passage and who is the lord in the second part of the passage remember i went and read that psalm of david the lord says to my lord Depending on what Bible version you look at, the the these two words Lord, pronounced the same, may be spelled slightly different in the font. Like in the NESB 95 that you can see on your screen, the first Lord, let me highlight it there, the first Lord is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then the second Lord in the sentence, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that represents someone else and it represents a different hebrew rendering and a different strong's number when we when we finally get to look at that so this is what biblical unitarian is going to jump on all right so that's kind of where we're going with their explanation they continue so psalm 110 represents the clearest evidence that the messiah is not god but a supremely exalted man that's where we left off two weeks ago so let's pick up their explanation They let us know this. The difference between Adonai, lowercase l-o-r-d, always used of men or of angels, and Adonai, which is used of God and sometimes written Adonai, is critical to the understanding of Psalm 110, verse 1. Are you understanding the technicalities that we're having to deal with? In this particular explanation, in this time, in this verse, I normally shy away from being overly technical with the grammar, the Greek, the Hebrew, etc., etc. But this time, there's no way to get around it because primarily, Biblical Unitarian's objection to Trinitarian theology is centered on the idea that these two Hebrew words, Adoni, lowercase l-o-r-d, and Adonai, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, etc., etc. These two different words speak to two different persons one of those persons is divine one of the persons is human and the way we can turn we can tell is simply by the um what our bible's telling us in the original hebrew et cetera. Et cetera. it seems like a slam dunk argument case closed the trinitarian has no leg to stand on but we're going to find out later on as we uh deal with the, refut- re, uh, ref- the the rebuttal part of my argument, the the um, refutation part, where I'm answering their their uh, statement, where I object to it. We're going to find out that what biblical... I'm, and I'm tipping my hand to you just a little bit up front, so in case you'd get lost in my explanation, or in case you um, aren't able to follow along with the technicalities. What we're going to find later on is that what Biblical Unitarian is telling us is not so much false or a lie as so much as they're only telling us half the story. So they are giving us truth. It is true that there are two different words in the Hebrew, Adoni, Adonai, and they come out as being um, spelled differently in the Hebrew when we put in all the vowel points. And they they are definitely pronounced differently, if you can hear them, Adonai, Adonai, All right, They have the same root word, Adon, but from there they differ. They even have different Strong's numbers, which we're going to find out later on. So, I don't want to say that Biblical Unitarian is lying to us. I don't want to, as I mentioned two weeks ago, I don't want to throw them under the bus in that fashion. I simply want to make you aware of the fact that they're not telling the entire story. That there's, like the Transformers um, slogan, there's more than meets the eye when it comes to the explanation here about um, Adonai and Adonai. Okay, so let's keep going. They say, this is Biblical Unitarian, they say, the Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the BDB, considered by many to be the best available, and I agree with that, by the way, makes the distinction between these words. They say, note how in the BDB, the word Adoni refers to lords, lowercase l-o-r-d-s, that are not God, while another word Adonai refers to God. And again, I agree with that um, statement there. So let's keep reading. This is um, BiblicalUnitarian.com. We'll keep going in their explanation for uh just another paragraph or two again i'm making this very very short tonight because of the um technical difficulties um number 1 reference to men my lord my master adoni this is the bdb's uh entry uh number 2 reference to god adonai notice that when the word refers to god it changes from when it refers to men the vowel under the n letter in the hebrew the nun the second letter from the left has changed. Of course, again, that's a a footnote from their own insert. And I agree, again, with um, most of the basic background technical details that they're sharing with us. It's not so much, and I'll keep saying this over and over so you guys can understand where I'm coming from, I'm not so much disagreeing with what the non-Trinitarian model is saying at this point in this explanation, so much as I'm saying that they haven't given us the total picture and so, as Berean students of the Word, as those of us who want to know the the, the final say and the, 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 the whole matter, we've got to read, we've got to listen to both sides of the argument, and we've got to hear the total explanation. It's almost like saying, it's an analogy, right? It's almost like saying, God, I want to know what you have to say to me as a human. I want to know your will in my life. I want to know the purpose for my being created. I want to know... Um, what I should be doing for you, how I should be living my life, what's most important in life, what's the meaning of life. And God says, read my word, read my love letter to you. And so you pick up a Bible, right? The 66 book version. You pick up the Bible and you start you decide to start reading the Bible from Genesis. You get all the way through to um, Malachi in a Christian version of your Bible, and then you close the book. And you go, okay, thank you, God, for giving me the instruction on how to learn who you are and how to learn Uh, what the meaning of life is and what my purpose for being created and serving you, etc., etc. You think you can figure it out because you've read half the book. But God's going to remind you and say, hey, why did you stop? You only got halfway through. If you want to hear the full set of instruction from me, you have to start picking up your reading in the book of Matthew and don't stop until you get to the end of the book of Revelation. Meaning, you have to read the second half of the book. Right? It's a two-parter. So that's kind of what Biblical Unitarians are doing. They're giving us half the story, and the half that they give us is, is mostly true, at least in this particular verse. Um, most of it what they're saying is accurate, because they're giving us factual details about certain Hebrew words and certain um, um, lexiconic entries and technicalities that we're going to read about in the Greek, et cetera, et cetera. So in closing tonight, let me read this final uh, paragraph from then them, and then we'll uh, make this a very shorter study tonight. Biblical Unitarian reminds us that in the above definition, Adoni and Adonai have the same root, which is Adon, which is the word listed in the concordances and most lexicons. They say, however, the exact words used are different. Adoni, the word used in Psalm 110.1, is never used of God. Ah, let me pause and interject just real quick. This is one of their first subtle kind of sleight of hand um, uh, tactics that they're going to be using where they're going to make like a conclusionary statement based on the part of the story that they're revealing to you. And They're going to use an absolute. This word is never used of God. Again, it's partially true from the perspective that they're giving us the details. It, it is mostly true, really, from their perspective. or to borrow the immortal words of um, Obi-Wan Kenobi speaking to Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi, I'm paraphrasing what Obi-Wan told Luke when he was talking about Darth Vader being his father. Um, you know, Luke objected. He was upset. He said, you told me Vader, I'm sorry, you told me um, Vader killed my father, right? And, and um, Obi-Wan, you know, is kind of backpedaling. Was he caught in a lie, you know, in, in A New Hope? he told luke yeah you know vader uh, murdered and destroyed your father right he murdered him he destroyed him he 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 killed him but then luke's like hey you told me vader murdered my father and but if vader is luke's father how can that be the case you know in luke's objection and and obi-wan looks at luke and he says luke what you're going to find is that certain things are true only from a point of view right They are true but only from a point of view right so notice like the the kind of um proviso or qualification that obi-wan placed on his words from the two movies prior no luke i didn't lie to you i only told you the truth from a certain point of view so if you have this, this certain point of view you can understand that what I told you back in the first movie, I'm being kind of funny here, right? What I told you in the first movie, I wasn't really lying to you so much as I was just telling you the truth, but only from a certain point of view, right? So, what's my point? In closing, what we're finding is that what Biblical Unitarian is, is telling us is true, right? That the word used in Psalm 110 1 is never used of God, but only from a certain point of view. You can hear the sarcasm in my voice and the humor, yeah, it is true but only from a certain point of view um when we say it's only used of god we're gonna find out later on that the word adoni is actually used of god it's actually used in the names of individuals in the bible it shows up like you know over 30 times in one book alone the book in the books of, of i believe it's first kings um the chronicles that give us the details of all these humans that lived and this word adoni shows up in the name of human individuals and the name the meaning of the name is my god my lord is whatever my my god is whatever 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 um you know fill in the blank for the extra part of the but we'll, we'll get to that but in closing uh what biblical unitarian reminds us that is that adoni is always used of a human or angelic superior again from their point of view they close by saying the fact that the hebrew text uses the word adoni of the messiah in psalm 110 is very strong proof that he is not god again from their perspective i disagree Um, with this perspective so far. The the key to understand this, however, from a Trinitarian point of view, is that the Messiah is both fully human as well as fully God. So when they say that Adonis speaks of the Messiah who is a human, well, again, from their perspective, from their limited scope, from what they're revealing from their side of the story, which they're leaving out the other half, I don't know if they're doing this on purpose or not, but I I get the impression that they're doing it because this is their perspective and they don't want other people to... be led away into the Trinitarian perspective. But as a Trinitarian, I'm trying to see both sides and reconcile how that the Messiah that we read about in the Bible is fully human, but at the same time he's what? He's fully divine. And so the Bible can describe him using Adoni, but at the same time he is Adonai. So he that's the secret is the secret is the incarnation, right? That's if you if I want to jump ahead. They continue. If the Messiah was to be God, then the word Adonai would have been used. Again, their presupposition, they believe that the Bible should be written in a certain language, and this is their um, uh, complaint with the Word of God from a Trinitarian perspective. If the Bible truly is Trinitarian, if God is Trinitarian, then shouldn't the Bible have described Him in so many plain words? Right, that's their their complaint. They continue, this distinction between Adoni, a Lord, L- lowercase L-O-R-D, and Adonai, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God, Lord God, holds even when God shows up in human form in the Old Testament. And they close, at least I close uh, for tonight, by reminding us that they say in Genesis 18.3, Abraham addresses God who was disguised as a human, but the text uses Adonai. So we'll, we'll unpack this some more as we go along i apologize for the shorter treatment tonight like i said technical difficulties are preventing me from um producing the the type of show that i want to and i don't want to make this a long show if it's going to end up being um discarded <laughs> if i end up having to re-record the whole thing anyway but that's going to do it for now that'll do it for a, a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism let's close in prayer i bless your name and despite the technical difficulties that i have from time to time lord i'm i'm thrilled and excited and honored be able to share my views with those who join me week after week during the live studies, as well as those who watch these videos later on as they get uploaded to YouTube and listen to the YouTube, uh, listen to the um, podcast that get uploaded to all of the other um, resources and platforms like iTunes. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the insight. Thank you for the challenge that it presents. Um, I don't understand the text fully myself, Lord, we're talking about prophetic events from the first study and these uh, Trinitarian, um, um, uh, trinitarian studies during these during the second study trinitarian topics lord i don't understand all of these but to the degree that your word is reliable it's trustable and and it's factual and it's accurate then even though i can't fully understand it i nevertheless fully embrace it i apprehend it i i accept it as Your given and authoritative and final word on the matter so Thank you for these truths that are impacting me in a meaningful way, and I pray that as I'm conveying these truths back to the students who join me, I pray that it, that it is helpful um, and beneficial to them as well. So continue to um, be with us, Lord. Protect us this week as we go along our different routes. Uh, bring us back together next week, and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. Basham Yeshua. Omain.